Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. I'm John Plotz, and this is the second episode of our Pandemic Interrupted mini-season on money, Recall This Book. So I'm lucky enough to be joined today by Peter Brown, who is the Rollins Professor of History Emeritus at Princeton. He's often in, regarded as the inventor of the field of late antiquity, and he does indeed, as Wikipedia alleges, know 26 languages. So recall this book felt that Professor Brown's two recent books, The Eye of a Needle, Wealth, The Fall of Rome, and The Making of Christianity in the West, 350 to 550 AD, and The Ransom of the Soul, made him the perfect person to talk to us about the moment that older Greek and Roman ideas of solidarity through citizenship are replaced by a new kind of universal, transgenerational, and institutional Christian church run by what Brown calls managerial bishops. We were anxious to hear his thoughts on whether that change, a really epochal and world-influencing change in the conception of charity and the conception of value and what it means to be rich, whether that change has something to do with the new kinds of wealth that flooded the late Roman Empire as wheat gave way to gold as the key form of currency. That is what Peter Brown calls the magic of wealth. Professor Brown, since our focus today is your argument about changing conceptions of wealth and the notion of treasure in heaven in late antiquity and the early centuries of Christianity, which is primarily laid out in that wonderful book that I see over there, Through the Eye of a Needle, as well as in the two books that followed it, can I just ask you to begin by situating that work maybe in the context of your other work and emphasizing what seems crucial about it? Or? Wow, that's it's a big, a big question. one. That's yeah. a big one. Yeah. No, let me see. Why did I think it was because I I had begun, as you probably know, earlier, dealing with basically images of the person, my body and society, yes. was very much about moral codes, what people thought their bodies were like. But what I was constantly working towards was to put the moral authority of Christian bishops and Christian monks in as wide and convincing a social context as I could, yes. having spent a lot of time doing their history from the inside, as it were, in body and society. And there, I was immensely helped by sort of one, one book which I, I'd known the author uh, and which finally came roughly when I arrived in Berkeley. That was Evelyne Patelagent, Pauvreté, Pauvreté Economique et Pauvreté Sociale à Byzance. Mm. Mm -hmm. Now that was a very exciting book for me because we had done a lot on the actual nitty-gritty of the social history of the later empire. And I, I think it's important, as I think I, I, I made rather plain at the beginning of Party and Society, this was a real growth point. Mm. Things had changed. A lot of the textbook generalizations about great landowning, about imperial despotism, all of these had been well and truly chipped. Mm. Um, so the, it was a, a, a real open field. Mm. What Evelyn did was something even more exciting, which was say, yes, 
but this is this is not only this this is also a society which is coming to see itself differently and she and her French colleague Paul Vane both pointed out the extent to which the classical world was in that way a pre-economic world social status by imperial office mm -hmm. or local office like the Chinese lists of of noble titles. Mm. That's how people actually saw the world. I mean, obviously, po poverty and wealth were there. There was great poverty, there was great wealth, and people resented one and often had compassion for the other. But somehow these people were first and foremost seen as, is he, is he a Kivis? Mm. Is he a citizen? Mm. Has he got his green card? I mean, mm. nowadays you can understand mm. that. And what Evelyn showed brilliantly was the way in which that categorization collapsed. Mm. The real social movement, she, she ascribed it to overpopulation, just simply that there were too many poor around, the mm. whole system broke down. I didn't totally agree with her on that one, but to have somebody who pointed out why are the rich and the poor so present in the evidence. Mm. And this is not simply, and I think this is the important thing, it's not simply because Christian compassion for the poor or Jewish compassion for the poor became more and more strong, though I think that element of differing attitudes to the poor mm. from the Old Testament onwards, mm -hmm. that is a pre-classical world mm. where actually rich and poor had meanings but not necessarily um, economic, mm. but to see how a society, which in some ways remained very continuous with itself, saw itself differently. Yes. A sudden awareness. Yes. I mean, I think analogies are the sudden appearance of many more homeless people than mm -hmm. we want to think. Yeah. Those sort of things. So it was more than just the sort of nasty gritty who was wealthy, how, how did they get the wealth, who were the poor, how much did the yeah. wealthy look after the poor. You had to actually have the terms wealthy and poor. Yeah. Yes. It was like putting on a new pair of spectacles. Yes. But if I understand, and this, forgive me, I didn't actually get this from your book, you're saying that that, that new set of terms actually has an antecedent pre-classical history. Yes. That's yeah. very important, because mm. I think one of the things which has always interested me, actually, since I, I learned Hebrew after I finished writing my biography of St. Augustine. Yes. And one of the reasons is, obviously, Hebrew is the way into the Semitic languages, and I was intending to work. Yeah. The other one was, already I noticed that with people like Augustine, their, their language of society had already become Judaized. That is, to an extraordinary degree, Augustine, who'd never knew a word of Hebrew, and had a rather tawdry Latin translation of the <laughs> Old Testament. I yeah. mean, he was constantly being, Jero was constantly jibing him about how, how little he knew. Yeah. And nonetheless picked up some of the basic units of Hebrew thought. Yes. The really big ones. And one of yeah. the big ones was a specific polarity, yeah. which is basically God, man, rich, poor. Yes. 
polarity of dependence and justice. Yes. Would you make an economic argument about the existence of that polarity in the pre-classical or non-classical Hebrew tradition, or would it? Is yes, it, no. I think not so much the Hebrew tradition. You see it in ancient Egypt mm. very strongly, I think. Mm. And what it ends up with is a world, yes, where the powerful are very powerful. Yes. But, and I think this is important, there's an extraordinary combination of acceptance of sharp hierarchy yes. and horror of violence. Mm. Now, these are two, they're rather paradoxical, but I think that was partly what it is. Yes. That is certainly in a certainly in Hebrew, but I think not only in Hebrew. Um, in in uh, say um, 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 Akkadian. Yeah. You you have a real sense of a binary organization. Yes. By which the rich can be rich, but they must give justice. Yes. It's a more it's a legal rather than an economic. I see. That is very interesting. Yeah, and therefore the, the language of the Psalms, which is constantly bugging God as the rich yes. man to do something for yes. me. Yeah. You know, and, and also those wonderful messianic psalms by which justice shall come down like dew upon the mountainside. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was that was very that for me was actually very moving. Yeah. Being used to these ferocious Athenian democracies, yes. where nobody is allowed to get in bigger than anyone yes. else, this is a society which accepts hierarchy, but also finds um, oppression and yes. violence repulsive. Yes. That, so, so just to, I'm glad you raised the Athenian democracy question because I wanted to ask you about the word that I cannot pronounce, which is civic. Uergetism? Uergetism. Uergetism. Yes, 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 okay, yes. now I know. Uergetism. Yes, yes, yes. So, so if you could tell us a little bit about civic, it's obviously very important in late antiquity. Yes, yes. And I was wondering if you could tell me about what its relationship is to those. Okay, to now, now first of all, one yeah. interesting thing is yeah. the Greeks never use the word uergetism. Even though it's a Greek word. Even though yeah. it's a Greek word, a yeah. word which you can extract from Greek. Yes. It was used by a very rich Greek millionaire, Mr. S- Singros uh-huh. in 19th century Athens. Huh. He was a Turkish citizen and remained so. Yeah. But he lavished on independent Athens museums, public institutions, public benefactions. And he got the name of yeah. his process became Evergetismos, Eurgetism. Mm. Um, in normal classical Greek it just means doing good things mm-hmm. but there's only good thing the only good things you can do if you're a good citizen is do it good to your city and it's it's that absolute how to put it restriction of the object of the of the benefaction mm-hmm. that makes it such a heavy concept yes so that senators who are prepared to spend millions on bringing crocodiles to show in mm. shows in Rome wouldn't yeah. lift a penny to give it to any passing b- 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 
bigger. Yeah, and so it this was, is the crucial notion of the civics. That like I think is yeah. why it's so. Yeah. It's all the more crucial, I think, looking back in the sense that by the fourth century, it's had hundreds of years. It's a cultural. It's it's like I mean uh, I didn't use the the analogy, but it strikes me it's a bit like courtoisie or chevalerie yeah, in the I Middle see. Ages. Uh-huh. It's a really primary virtue. Yeah, and and is it is it continuous with that earlier Greek tradition, or it only understands itself as a descendant? It understands of that. itself, and, and yeah. no, to a certain extent, it is. I mean. It, there are only a few things you you can do with 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 with, with wealth, and if if the if if the the grooves are there, that's yes. the way that's the way it'll go. Yeah. But it does mean to say that you are people who are hardwired. Yeah, and to suggest that somebody spend it on the poor would be like suggesting to Mr. Mellon that it should go to the homeless rather than to building up a splendid art collection. It's the same. Through the eye of a needle, that was Jesus at his wildest. Mm. (laughs) And one must remember that what I partly wrote this book about was one of my, I guess, in a high school book once said once pet peeve is that right mm. yeah. yeah my pet academic peeve yeah. was that we shouldn't take this radical language about wealth yes as representing the only thing christians yes were told to do and therefore a lot of them went away with their tails between their legs feeling guilty that they hadn't and that everything else was treated as a sort of rather shabby compromise right um, and that, I think, takes that radical language, which was hyped up right. by people with an actual um, interest in it, people like Jerome, people like Augustine were yeah. much more sane. And they realized that giving to gods, yeah. <laughs> like giving to one's neighbor, were part of normal life in the ancient world. And I tried to get that. Yeah. By getting in the unspectacular as well as the spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But nonetheless, a clear change. I mean, can, oh, yes. related to oh, the poor yes, and yes, the wealthy. Yes. And, yeah. yeah. But don't forget, it is a clear change which is crystallized in wonderfully dramatic way yes. by a few outstanding people. Yes. But, you know, yeah. Christianity kept on. Yeah. Much closer. If you want to know about day-to-day Christian use of wealth in relation to the poor, yeah. the first thing you should read would be the Jerusalem Talmud. Mm. The rulings mm. in the Talmud are mm. almost exactly the same as those in, in the Christian churches. Yeah. And yeah. it's this division between Jewish and Christian studies which I think makes one lose yeah. a lot of what the average Christianity was, yeah. was like. At this point in the conversation, we shifted towards the question of what the intellectual impact on Christianity was of changes in money flow and ideas of wealth in the Roman Empire. The key question that Peter Brown discussed, and there are footnotes aplenty to this debate in the show notes for this episode on our website, so check there to be directed in other ways, was a chicken and egg one about Christianity's originality. 
did theology drive new social forms, or did new social forms or even economic developments produce a new and surprisingly enduring set of religious metaphors housed in the Christian church? Brown's answer or answers to that question may surprise you. I have a, a whole set of questions about the the sort of wealth management on the part of the church, like oh, yeah. managerial bishops yeah, sure. is such a wonderful concept. But can I just get at, and I don't want to pin you down to a simple um, direction of causality, but is Christianity, do you think, just a theological possibility that's there at the right time when this mind shift occurs? Or is Christianity the the spur, the the reason that this... Wealth, wealth and poor, you know. Oh, ah, that's the 64,000. I say, yeah. But, no, <laughs> no. What I, I, let me go back to where I disagreed with, say, Evelyne Patelogeon. Evelyne yes. is a good French analyst, structuralist, mm-hmm. and Paul Vane also. They liked all of these events to happen without any Christian impact. I see. They positively wanted, and it's a very attractive view, to have these major changes happening because of some general rumbling in the Roman Empire. And can I ask about one point you make about that, and forgive me if it's just an incidental um, fact, but you talked about uh, basically greater concentrations of wealth and the existence, I think, of new gold solidity. Yes, yes, and yes, so, yes that's right. So, so one of the things in this series of interviews we're interested yes. in is the material attributes of wealth oh, yes. itself. Oh, so yes. whether that, oh, yes. whether the money is oh, a difference yes. maker. Oh yes, yeah. no, no, no. I, I, I think there, there you're absolutely right. But I, 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 I do think that as with marriage and sexual morality, yes. yes, the more we study it, the more I think people have come to the conclusion that actually sermons helped. Mm. Christianity was a remarkable religion because it was a sermonizing religion. Mm. Mm. That is unusual yes. in a world which is used to public debate yes. in the theatron or in yes. the, the the bully to have uh, a million sermons were preached in Augustine's lifetime all, all over North Africa. Yes. We still haven't quite got the measure of that. Yes. So I think in ratcheting up a dilemma which would have been there anyway, mm. the Christians... Certainly, the Christians found the names for mm. for what they were at and gave yes. a sort of clarity, yes. without which I just couldn't have written such a fat yes. book. Yeah. When you compare that with the lack of clarity with which, say, in Indian historiography or Chinese yes. wealth and poverty are yeah. are handled as not yeah. being so clearly focused, yes. but. If, what you're also saying is that yes, this is a time when people are to a remarkable degree thinking of wealth as movable. I think it's mm. something like movable. And if you look at Augustine's sermons, there are fantasies of wealth which involve a very buoyant economy. Mm. He will say, oh yes, giving to the poor it's like a traveler's check. Yes. Uh, yes, that image. I just found that in yes, Ransoming yeah, the yeah. Poor. It's really that, interesting. Ransoming the Soul, it, sorry. Yes, try yes, it. Yeah. Take him. Yeah. 
That is yeah. remarkable, and yeah. I certainly I'm sufficiently an old-fashioned semi-Durkheimian social anthropologist of a yeah. rather Mary Douglas sort to think, yeah. yes, if those things are considered socially possible, they become considered religiously possible. Yeah. And it's hard to tell which came first. Yeah. But yeah. The, certainly the idea that money can become very fluid yeah. and that therefore it can shift yeah. out of private hands into the hands of, and I think the other really important thing is the church in some ways does develop a notion of corporate identity. Yes, that was what I hope we could get step to. Step yeah. by step. Yeah. I still haven't figured this out quite. Yeah. I think a good colleague of mine, Ian Wood, Ian Wood of the Leeds University, mm. is working on it for the early Middle Ages. Mm. But the, the, the church gets a lot of wealth because it is seen as an eternal body in a way in which the Senate or the Roman state mm. or your local gods yes. were never quite seen in quite the same way. And why is that? Why would they not be? I, yeah. I think it is because the bishop is never seen as an owner. Yes. The whole, the whole again, again, it's back to the Psalms. Yeah. A bishop is a pastor. Yes. It, yes, I wanted to ask you about Foucault and pastoralism. Well, I yes. Think, no, you yeah. know, I didn't, I didn't know that side of Foucault. Yeah. And it came, when it came out in 2008, was when yes. I just began to write. Yes. It was a bombshell. Yes. Because those Collège de France lectures yes. I mean, were they're simply from not known. 78 or 79, but I'm in the same situation. I only read them about two years ago. Precisely. Yeah. And I said, yeah. ah, that's... Yeah. So, so that came almost as an afterthought. I yeah. remember incorporating it in at the very last yeah. moment. Yeah. As ob- and I think he didn't quite get the extraordinary what that really means mm. in terms of the double persona of the bishop. Mm. He is a local patron, he is a man of power, there's no yes. doubt about it. Yeah. But at the same time, he actually isn't. Yeah. And that, that leads to a form of impersonal continuity yeah. of wealth. Yeah. And is that where the does managerial bishop capture that? Or is I, that I, yeah. I hoped it would. Yeah. Because they it, and it, this this is something which comes with great difficulty. People always like to feel they've left there. Well, it's a bit like modern. I mean, think of a modern benefactor and an alum yeah. to Princeton, yeah. who instead of getting a gym named after him, yeah. becomes general purposes and it yeah, yeah. is used for a chapel organ yeah. or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People got royally pissed off about yeah. those situations, and it, right. it keeps on. I mean, yeah. this is not a purely late antique, early medieval, but by the time of the early Middle Ages, certainly in the West, they have um, a language to cope Yeah, with. but so just to make sure I understand, you're saying that you really don't see that describing the Senate, describing the divinity of the Roman state or any of that? I'm not, I'm not as good on Roman public law yeah. as I should be. But my feeling is certainly among the wiser heads I've consulted, it is in some ways sharper. It's more impersonal. And there's no doubt that the Fisk 
isn't just the fisc, it's what the, the emperor owns. Right. So the emperor is always yeah. a gigantic landowner, and never yeah. the steward, I don't think he's... While right. a bishop is constantly, and this is where, again, I think, if you have a totally aristocratic view, you miss that constant pressure of the average Christian community yeah. to have somebody whom they can trust. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you said Durkheimian, but there's actually something Weberian in that analysis exactly. as well, because exactly. it's about a, a structure that people can be invested in. Even the point you make about the differentiation of the clergy, right? Oh, yes. That, that you said that, I think you said that was uh, consumer-driven. Oh, very that, much so. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, the normal historiography, this again is one of my sort of pet peeves. Yeah. The normal historiography, very much as one would imagine, emphasizes the bishop and clergy screwing the laity, yeah. screwing them ever more sure. successfully. Yeah. Well, well, it's like Chaucer's image of the fat In monks, Brooks, you know, exactly. like they've got and burgundy in the back. Exactly. And, yeah. and that, yeah. A, I think... The, the clergy got really into the business of screwing in, in yeah. the Middle yeah. Ages. Yeah. And that hadn't come quite. Yeah. What I think is important is, as you say, it is some of these things are consumer-driven. Yeah. People want monasteries because they want holy people to, play, to pray for them. Yes. They, they want their, their priests to be celibate, yeah. at least when they are um, active as priests. Yeah. In North Africa, celibacy comes to be taken for granted without any single conciliar ruling and without any debate on it. Yeah. And it's quite you, extraordinary. So how do you understand that? Do you understand that as they can't have a family because they must be devoted to this? Because they were, And also you don't want the family to have their dibs on the on the wealth of the church, right. So it's a so, way of... Yeah, it is managerial. It's a way of making them the caretaker of the wealth that belongs to... I think, I really think it is. So and that in an odd way, the language of kingship and priesthood in the Psalms and in parts of the Old Testament gives them the formal. Yes. Gives them the go-ahead. Yes. To think in those terms. Yes. And here, hence, I think... Foucault's notion of pastoral power was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it was something everyone had been assuming, but he, he brought right. it out. But, but if I understand it, you're actually criticizing a dimension that you say he doesn't get because he wants to see the power as concentrated and therefore oh, yes, yes, the yes. attribute yes, of the yes, state. Yes, yeah. Mm. yes. Yeah. Though Foucault was, a, was an old-fashioned Catholic in many ways, <laughs> and therefore the power of the church was... Yeah. Uh, was absolutely fixed. Yeah, yeah. I actually noticed that. Yeah. Can I ask one other question about that notion of corporate corporate being? Um, what about the uh, the uh, Greek city states? You know, they oh they manage their finances disastrously. I see. They always yeah. got bankrupt. I see. Because I think they really didn't have a sense of uh. of utterly independent collective. That's they tried it, yes. get it in Pliny, but yes. nobody trusted the cities. Yes. 
if they're constantly complaining that their gifts are being misused. I see. So, no, I think... I, 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 so they're I, basically I, too individualist? There's not enough buy-in to the... I think they're too individualist. That is, yeah. they, they ultimately want a patronage system yeah. where a big man is at the top. Yeah. That says Greeks haven't changed. Yeah. <laughs> but it is... I, 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 I think they, fi- they fail to, to see that to get the right balance between patronage and I see. public. I see. And they basically opted for patronage, which means euergotism, which right. means a big man comes forward, he, he blows a lot of money, and then right. goes away, and his sons yeah. lose interest, and they're constantly being sued I for see. not living up to yeah. their father's promise. Yeah. And this is... Compare this is much rarer in the Christian church. Obviously, because I think smaller issues are in smaller sums are, of, are yeah. involved, except in the really big churches. Yeah. Well, so can I ask the same question about causality about this kind of corporate formation? Do you see it only in the church, and do you see it because of the church's theological attributes, or is it just the church happens to be there at a time when this idea emerges? Part of me would like to think that it was just there and the church too. I'm not so sure. Mm. I think if you look at, say, things like Visigothic kingship, which people don't spend their whole time looking at, (laughs) it is interesting when they are dealing with what the royal fisc is like. Yes. They're actually using language coming from the canons of the councils. Oh, that's fascinating. So uh-huh. there, you can occasionally get, I think, a, a shift towards a tighter view of what is not personal yes. in the wealth of a king, yes. which actually echoes that of a bishop, and the bishop comes chronologically f- first. Yeah, yeah. That is very interesting. Um, and I guess that's a place also where your compar- comparandum would be of interest as well to think about. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. Because in some ways, I think part of the moral of the story is that it, the, 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 the later Roman Empire, forever, whatever its virtues, was a pretty rigid system. And institutional experimentation yeah. isn't its favourite activity. But, yes. but the Christian churches, I think, precisely because they are not in the hands of the tr- truly powerful. Yes. They're in the hands of your basically average Joe. Yes. The small landowners, minor, minor, seriously notables who get a lot out of being priests or yeah. a lot out of being bishops. They they are much more able to sort of experiment in things, yeah. to lay down rulings. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Can, can I ask you to say more about, going back to this question of the physicality of money, that it seems like one of the important parts of your argument is that the notion of treasure in heaven has a kind of literality in the early church. That's something which I feel is, is the case. It's very difficult to prove, mm. but I really have a feeling that there is, and some to put it, an imaginative, an imaginative 
notion of how to put it a magic of wealth mm. which means it's what's that book by by Jackson I think is there's metaphors we live by yes there are some metaphors that really are dynamic yeah I, I do, our, our analogies well look at our analogies of taken from the internet now yes for almost everything yes and the upbeatness Yes. We, we will look very silly. Yes. Just as when we now look at Bishop sermons and yes. finding Augustine laboriously lightening arms giving to one of those water wheels, a sakia like water wheel that yes. raises the water. Yes. We say, ha ha ha, but no, this is a real living metaphor yes. at that time. Yes. I, I, I still haven't. Uh, I still don't know how it works, but it seems yeah. to work. So, in terms of the question of the where the causality goes there, the, the wealth of the Roman Empire and the possibility of that kind of liquidity of the system, that goes away in the Middle Ages. And it yet, does. And yet the conceptions that are linked to it Exactly, survive. Yeah. And that, of course, is one of the fascinating things about yeah. That's why I very deliberately went beyond the technical fall of the Roman Empire. Because yeah. I wanted to see how things like Augustine's notion of wealth survived. And when we say in books, that isn't the complete truth. It supplies in imaginative models that don't yeah. go away for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Hence, when I wrote on my most sort of re more recent book on the ransom of the soul, yeah. again you got it. this was some ways trying to make a study of what are the continuities between bodies of thought developed in a very very yeah. different empire from say Frankish Gaul of the seventh century, but yeah. nonetheless, how do those how do those sort of imagined landscapes continue? Yes. You know, one talks about the particularity of Christianity. Yes. And it is, I think it is, it's, it's sense that it is sociologically universal as well as geographically universal. Yeah. Or became that. I mean, I yes. think it began much more purely an almost moonshot notion that the gospel should be preached to the ends of the earth. So yeah. if you deal with the early Christian histories, it's always people at the ends of the earth. That's interesting. Um, really? Ethiopians, yeah. St. Yeah. Patrick in Ireland. It's a sort yeah. of moonshot. I see. Uh -huh. And then, of course, with people <laughs> like Augustine, in, under his pressure maybe because of yeah. the Donatism, but I'm trying to look for the smoking ground elsewhere. Yeah. You yeah. really have a sense that these people truly believe that Christianity can become a majority religion. I see. That is universe, flat universalism yeah. is replaced sometime in the fourth century, and I give my right arm to know yeah. when, if, if it could be thought yeah. as a when, yeah. it becomes sociologically universal. Yeah. So you really are in a world where, yes, you are saying, I think the same thoughts, at least in church, yes. as a poor man and as a senator. Right. That's a really big change. Yes. And I, I think that 
Victorian England with its Christian background re- went through the same crisis. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. think society, maybe societies do sometimes, they're more aware of this. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you think about it in, in America for a moment, to switch sideways, that you get the Civil War, yes. which is a, you know, a true ethical and intellectual upheaval oh, yeah, for the country. Yeah. And then you get the Gilded Age. <laughs> you know, yes. So you get, I mean, exactly. of course... The one there's after a, the other. Exactly, right. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so it would be nice... I mean, I, I was raised to believe in a Whigite teleology yes, in which these no, things are gradually yes. perfecting themselves. <laughs> but, but instead... Maybe ta- flip-flop. Maybe yeah. flip-flop. You, what what yeah. I think is interesting is, actually, if I were to characterize late antique civilization, mm. it's a civilization which, compared with the classical, had a remarkable tolerance for anomaly. Mm. That is... Greeks kept Greeks and classical Romans kept themselves squeaky clean mm. by not letting in anything more than I they see. could cope with. Yes. There's a real sense. Right. And if you look at this say, when 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 Galen writes in Greek about medical science, um, he writes just in a passing word, I write this no more. I write this for barbarians no more than I would write it for, for wine bears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, we know the limits. We are totally that. outside this yeah. world. By the 4th century, uh, the emperors are one-eighth mm-hmm. Frankish. Yes. People are obsessed by the barbarian invasions yes. because they actually know much more about them than they had done yes. when they were just as bad. Yes. 200 years earlier. So there is a sort of taking in of anomalies. Yes. The Christian notions of the resurrection takes, yeah. in, takes in the body. Yes. While the classical dualism, I even Plotinus's right. very nuanced dualism, right. allows you to basically dump the body like, yes. like a sort of Kleenex. Yes. But if I can connect that back to a point you made earlier about the way that even in Augustine, who doesn't speak Hebrew, you nonetheless see these, you know, Semitic traditions that come through. You're not really making an argument here about the, the recrudescence of a kind of earlier Jewish thought. You're making an argument about in the period of late antiquity, there's a bunch of different conditions which suddenly force the civic ugaritism or the Roman consensus to be disrupted from various I think that's directions. so, but finding the language acts as a sort of accelerator. Maybe that's the Interesting. way. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, certainly what sort of struck me was that one's extraordinary degree, Roman writers find it hard to talk about the, Hungary in um, in the countryside. I mean, they really did not. When you have when you have descriptions of certain events, and you can perhaps compare a contemporary third century description with, say, a fourth century description of the same event, you find that um, the fourth century description emphasizes violence, oppression. Yeah more strongly and very often because it's the language of the Psalms. Yes, 
That's so interesting. Can I just ask a, a question? It's really the question of um, not, I won't say relevance, because that's such a flattening word, but the question of how you think about the historical rhyme to our own day. Yes, and, yeah. yeah. Well, I think about it, I usually avoid it. Yeah. Because basically, as a historian, one has one beast basically without pushing it back into total primitivism yes. in the way in which people like Finlay and Hopkins I think did one has to begin by saying these are almost incommensurable societies yes. they really are um, I would when somebody asks me these questions yeah. I would always ask them well, what do you think of your own society? Mm, yeah. And there's always a hidden agenda there. Yeah. I'm being asked to give my stamp yes. on what they think. I remember being rung up by a, a, a very polite but rather disagreeable young German from a very right-wing, very right-wing newspaper, Jung, Jung of High Height, I think it was. That sounds to ominous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, and now that, that people had rehabilitated the barbarian invasions as an important factor in the t- time of the Roman Empire, yeah. these things due to migrations of people, is it not, Professor Brown? What, therefore, Professor Brown, do you think about Turkish immigration? I see, yes, right, and, yeah. Uh, I said, get lost. I mean, I really that because it was it was so very obvious that what they wanted me was to tick the squares in their own image of their own society. Yes. So any critique of presentism yes. should begin in the present, not saying, oh no no, it isn't like that at all. And there, I that's the strictly academic side, the humane side. Yeah is that, of course, these things spark your interests. But... Um, yeah, well, when you mentioned making the world safe for plutocracy, I mean, obviously, yes. here we're, you know, post-1980, I, I think your world. notion yeah. of actually a rhyme is a yeah. very good one, yeah. because there is an aesthetic sense yeah. of parallelism. I mean, one thing, and also of actually urgency. I mean, there's one thing where... I would be prepared to be not presentist, but to really think of how an aspect of ancient culture, which we had tended to rather overlook Mm. um, as platitudinous, superficial, Mm. um, has now become relevant for reasons which we now understand, which is the personalization of power. We always, I remember when I was in Oxford particularly, um, reading people like Seneca on on clemency or things like this. Mm. He was an old fart. I mean, this mm. was Victorian uplift mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. how an emperor should behave, mm-hmm. should behave. But said, no, compared with the problems of empire, you know, uh, behavior, what has behavior got to do right. about it? Right. Day era, what does control of anger have mm. to do about it? We realize now how extremely weak 
and we 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 always thought of this certainly in a well-regulated England yeah. that nowadays no bureaucratic methods legal methods yeah. these right. things are there they control right. the wild the wild beast right and right. do they yeah and I think I've come to a much greater afraid it's scary a much greater respect for these ancient moralists yes because they re, they make you realize that ultimately you are dealing with a world where a lot of people exercise power without any restraint whatsoever yes, yes. and mm-hmm. you know if i were interested in understanding mr putin yeah. i would read tacitus at seneca yes and yeah. I wouldn't think they were old farts. Yes, no, that's very helpful. I mean, because I've been thinking a lot about stoicism lately and its various yes. forms. And yes. uh, that, but I hadn't really thought about that political dimension. I so, think, yeah, certainly, my people, second, third, fourth century, yeah. were obsessed by the personal elements of power, partly because it was the only thing they could control. Yeah, you could at least get an emperor to keep his cool. Yeah, at least with luck. Yeah. And um, that crazily personal nature of power in the ancient world, which we love because it it's produces strong individuals, but yeah. would you really want to be dependent on Pericles? Professor Brown, thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, I, don't I greatly enjoyed it. Monopolize Thanks your day. a lot. I, I did as well. So recall this book is hosted by John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry with music by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy. Sound editing is by Claire Ogden and website design and social media by Kaliska Ross. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions. And as you know, if you enjoyed today's show, we would love it if you wrote a review or rated us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is part of a conversation series that includes uh, Chris Dezan and Mark Blythe, so you may be interested in those conversations as well. And from all of us here at Recall This Book, uh, thank you for listening.